If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. Book of John, chapter 1. And if you're using one of the Bibles that uh, was provided by the church, you'll find it on page 981. As you turn there, would you pray with me? Lord, it is truly a, a privilege to open your word this morning. It is a privilege to behold your truth and to seek to know you more and understand you more and draw nearer to you. And I pray, Lord, that as the God who helps the helpless, as the one who gives uh, grace to those in need, we ask you would do that this morning, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts to see and to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're at all like me, maybe a bit of a, a nerd, then a fascinating topic of thought is the origin and the evolution of traditions. We all have traditions in our lives. Uh, some of us have adopted them from our families. Some of them are society-wide. And, and some of them we began ourselves and hope to pass on to the next generation. And at this time of the year, I often find myself thinking about the origins of some of the Christmas traditions that many of us have. And how these traditions have evolved over time and over the years. Do you ever wonder why we have evergreen trees and lights and gifts? and carols at this time of the year? Where did that start? Uh, what was the significance of it when it was first widely adopted? I will spare you and not bring you down the rabbit trail of Google searches uh, that I do around this time of the year every year um, to feed my fascination. But I think what we can acknowledge is that if at some point those things were central in conveying the message and truth about Christmas and about Jesus who is the light of the world who gives the gift of evergreen life and puts a new song in our hearts, that these things today for many people are at best an afterthought or maybe not even a thought at all. The significance of, Christ of Christmas for many has been absorbed by the consumerism that fuels our covetousness and turns Christmas in on us rather than calling us outward to the true gift of Christmas. And being void of much of the significance, it's no wonder then why there tends to be a spike in depression around Christmas. And even in self-harm in January, once all the dust has settled, all the parties and feasts and Boxing Day sales are over, and we realize that we are no happier when it's all said and done. Even for us as Christians, it's possible to feel a pressure to minimize the, the Christian distinctiveness of Christmas, what is meant to be a time of merry and peace and joy can often be a time of stress and debt and loneliness. Sometimes we need a refresher on the origins and the central purpose and meaning of Advent and Christmas. And this morning, as well as next Sunday, Lord willing, I hope that in part we will have that sort of refresher. So, if you have your Bible open to John chapter 1, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5.
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This opening section of the book of John is said by many to be one of the most glorious and theologically rich passages in all of Scripture as it pertains to the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work. There are truly oceans of truth in these few verses that can take an eternity to reach the bottom of. We are swimming in deep waters here in this passage. And there are ideas and concept conveyed, concepts conveyed in these few words that express realities that for even the most learned theologians are mind-bending. But we do well to swim in these waters because in God's economy, the deepest water is the sweetest water. And in plunging beneath the surface, we find breath. So I've been told by Peter that I don't have an eternity to preach this morning. So our plan is to just catch a glimpse of the glories that are disclosed in these words and all the while acknowledging that we are leaving behind an endless field of ripe fruit unharvested. I want to encourage you right off the bat that if at some point you feel tempted to check out or that some of the concepts or words feel like they're too dense or confusing, I want to encourage you to really lean in and focus. These things that we are considering this morning are foundational and they're vitally important ideas and realities that our hope and life as Christians are built on. We do well to study the foundations because even though the foundations are under the ground and and mostly out of sight, they are what supports all that is above the ground. A weak foundation makes for a weak building. In order to really understand what's going on in these opening verses of John, there are two important things we need to see as a preface. So two things are this. The structure of the book of John, it's 21 chapters, and it has a certain structure to it. And secondly, the purpose of the book of John. So first, the structure. These first 18 verses in chapter 1 are, are like a prologue in a novel. They set out the major themes and they convey the central ideas of the book in a very concise way. They are like the seed of the book that throughout the rest of the book germinates and grows into full bloom. So what John says here in these opening words, he defines and he develops throughout the book. That will be helpful for us to remember as we explore and understand these first few opening words. John spends the vast majority of the book, so from verse 119 all the way through to almost the end of chapter 20, expanding on and defending and demonstrating the truthfulness of the claims he makes here in these opening words. So that's the structure of the book. The prologue, these first 18 verses, then the body, 119 to 2029. Then in 20 verse 30, chapter 20 verse 30, he brings us to the second important aspect of this book that we need to have in mind when we're reading this passage. And that is the purpose statement of the book. John, the author, and more fundamentally God, the author, doesn't leave us to hypothesize or to debate what the book was written for. He tells us in plain language 
what the aim of this entire book is, so that when reading it, we might connect each aspect of what we study to that fundamental and controlling purpose. And this is what he says is the aim of his book. In chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us that what we are reading was a selected compilation of events and words from Jesus' life. There were many more things that he could have included. But each event and each word recorded are all aimed at a specific result, which he discloses in that second verse there. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. The book of John exists not just to inform us and give us theological categories and doctrinal definitions, but more fundamentally, it exists that we might believe in a person. Jesus Christ, not just as a person, whether a wise person, a virtuous person, or even a prophetic person, but believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the awaited Messiah that God has sent into the world. And the result of this faith, John says, is that we might have life in his name. This statement implies at least two things. First, that every person who reads the book of John is in need of life. Meaning they don't have it apart from believing the things that John proclaims in this book. And second, that the life that all are in need of is found in the name or in the person of Jesus Christ. John writes an account that is meant to be heard throughout all the world and his universal conviction is that all people in all the world are in a sense dead and in need of the life that Jesus the Christ gives to those who believe in him. All of creation has been brought into a state of death. And this Jesus that John spends 21 chapters disclosing in his book is the source of life. So as we turn now to the opening verses of John's book, I ask you at the outset, are you convinced that the Jesus of the Bible is the singular source of true life? Are you convinced in both your head and in your heart that life itself cannot be found anywhere else but in Jesus Christ? The truth is, if we're honest, none of us in this room can answer that with an unqualified yes. We all have our degrees of unbelief. We who are Christians have come to believe this in a most fundamental way, but when we look in our hearts and when we look at our lives, we must, if we're honest, admit that there is much evidence of remaining unbelief. A prayer for us is that Jesus might show something of himself to us this morning and win over more of our hearts, more of our devotion, more of our appetites and ambitions. And for those this morning who are here who have never encountered the glory of Christ, 
in the Bible and have never repented of seeking life and fulfillment elsewhere and who have never confessed that to know Jesus is indeed the purpose of life and the source of life, my prayer is that today God might make known to you that this is indeed true and that you might give up your lesser pursuits for this great and most worthy pursuit of life in Christ. There is a pervasive problem that has affected all of creation. There is a certain lack of true life that characterizes all of humanity. And so it follows that the, the solution to this global plague on humanity cannot come from within our ranks. But it must come from outside of creation by someone unaffected by the sin and death that marks all of us as humans. And that is exactly what John proclaims in the opening verses of his book. He proclaims to us one that is uniquely able to give us life. And in lifting up this unique one, he makes known to us that this life giver has three distinct and qualifying traits. For those who are taking notes, these are the three. First, in verse 1 and 2, we see that he is the eternal God. Then in verse 3, we see that he is the creator of the world. Then in verse 4 and 5, we see that he is the source of life. So let's first look and see how John portrays the giver of life as the eternal God. Throughout our passage, we'll see that John routinely reaches all the way back to the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and uses a lot of the same language that we find there in the first book of the Bible in order to present us one who is unaffected by the death and corruption we have all tasted and is therefore uniquely able to deliver us from this death and grant us life in his name. Let's look at verse 1 together. It opens with these words. In the beginning... And as mentioned, if you're familiar with the opening words of the entire Bible, you'll notice that John here is using that same language and is paralleling the creation account of Genesis. In our passage, John speaks of the beginning of creation, of light, darkness, of life. These are all things that are spoken about in the opening chapters of Genesis where the creation of the universe is accounted. What John is doing in these verses is, in a sense, writing down a parallel creation account. As we remember, John's whole aim in this book is to convince people that there is one who can deliver us from the death that has infected this whole creation and can create a whole new people and world full of life in his name. And to do so, he goes back to the earliest chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1, we read of the week of creation where God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Then, shortly after, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the introduction of sin into the world. And it is this sin and its consequent death that John is writing to remedy. And so what, we, what he does is he reaches even further back into the past than even Genesis 1, to that which preceded creation. When John is here using the words in the beginning, he isn't drawing our attention to the creation week, but is calling us into an existence that preceded even that. He is bringing us to the eternity that was before time and space, where there were no created beings and nothing but God himself. 
And we know that's the case because in verse 3, John will tell us, and we'll look at it more closely in a little bit, but John will tell us about the role that this one he is proclaiming in his gospel had in the creation of all things. This would mean that the one whom he's pointing us to and calling us to believe in preceded the creation and therefore is uncreated. There is only one of whom that can be said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before creation, there was only God, the uncreated one. But John doesn't use the words of Genesis 1. He doesn't say, in the beginning, God, like we read there and like we might expect to read here. But instead he says, in the beginning was the Word. And in that statement, John opens up for us a whole world of glorious truth. This term that he uses, word, was the word. This term that's translated word is hugely significant. It comes from uh, the Greek word logos, which can be translated in, in different ways into the English language. It can be translated as speech, as word, as logic, as idea, as reason. And in trying to get an understanding of how John is using this word and the implications of his use of it, we might be helped to consider how we as humans use speech or words. When we speak to someone, when you speak to someone, you are disclosing something of your inner self to them. You're expressing your beliefs, your understanding, your very being to them and using the medium of words to do so. So we can say in a certain sense that your words, our words, are a part or are an expression of our very nature and being. However, this comparison falls short, as many do, when we realize that we as humans have the capacity to do something that God does not have the capacity to do. We have the capacity to say things that are not true. We have the ability to speak words and express ideas that don't truly reflect us or our beliefs. We have the ability to present outwardly something that doesn't coincide with the inner reality of our being. Anytime we speak, our words become distinct from us in the sense that they have left our mouths and now represent us to the world around us. But our words also have the ability to be distinct from us in their very essence. When we lie, our words are a misrepresentation of us, even though they came from us. And in this way, God is unlike us. God does not share our capacity to alienate himself from his words at that essential level. Everything he speaks is a pure and inerrant representation and expression of himself. His words are distinct from him in that they are their own entity, yet they are simultaneously indistinct from him in that they are an exact representation of his essence. His word is both with God and God. And remember that this word that is being spoken of is described as existing before there was a creation to interact with or speak to. Before there was time in which words might be disclosed to any created being, this word exists both alongside the eternal God and as the eternal God himself. 
And that's exactly what John tells us next. Read with me in the next words of verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word that John speaks of is the expression of God in a way that is both distinct from and one with God. He is, as the writer of Hebrews says, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is the radiance in that He radiates from or proceeds from and is distinct from the Father and He is the exact imprint in that in His nature He is Himself God. We are with these words being invited into a deep mystery. John is telling us that there is a being that existed before creation who is both singular in essence and yet consists of distinct persons. There is God and there is the Word, the expression of God. Both are God, both are eternal, both are distinct persons, yet both have the same essence and are in absolute perfect harmony with one another. This is the foundational statement that the Apostle John makes about the one that he is presenting to us in his Gospel, that he is the eternal God. He existed before the foundation of the world, and he himself is God in the same way that the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is God. This is the first truth that John presents to us as he holds up this one who is uniquely able to grant us life through belief in him. And this is why Jesus, in chapter 14 of John, says to his disciple Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. These words would be blasphemous if spoken by anybody else but Jesus. Though all of us here today are made in the image of God, none of us are able to perfectly and fully embody or display the nature of God. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God who existed before creation and in whom, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, He is able to make such a claim. And the implication of this truth is clear when we see the point that Jesus was making to Philip, his disciple, when he said those words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This eternal word, which came into the world as a man, is unique among all humanity in that he perfectly reflects the character of God. The sin and death that pervades throughout the world is a result of our failure to perfectly reflect the character of God. And so this word who pre-exists mankind and was unblemished by the fall of mankind entered into humanity and stands alone in his ability to redeem mankind from the effects of the fall and be the way back to God and the life that is in him. So John holds up this first and most fundamental glorious truth about the one who is able to grant life, that he is the eternal God. And the next two truths flow from this this most central one. In verse 3, John moves to the second glorious truth that 
that is true about the subject of his gospel. We've seen that the word is the eternal God. And here in verse 3, we see that the word is the creator. Read with me in verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was nothing was not anything made that was made. I mentioned the, the Genesis parallel, and, and, and now we're in the section of our passage that, that more directly mirrors the creation account of Genesis 1. John is speaking of all of creation here. All things, meaning all things that were made, all things that have a beginning, all things outside of God Himself. And John says that all these things were made through this one that he calls the Word. This verse shines almost like a light back onto Genesis 1 and helps us to see behind the scenes of the creation week. In Genesis, we're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, And God said, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let there be vegetation, and so on. Now as we layer on top of that, this revelation of God's word that we find in the book of John, we see a beautiful harmony and unity of purpose within the persons of God. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Word working in unison in the creation of all things. The one that John presents in his gospel was not only present and alive prior to creation, but was also active in creation itself. The perfect unity of being and purpose within God expressed itself in the making of the world. The Word was the agent by which God made the world. Everything that was made, the Word made it. Everything that exists, is subject to the authority of the one by whom it came into existence. And the purpose of God in creation of the world revolves around the the word through which he created the world. Jesus has a vested interest in all things since he himself made all things. Jesus has authority over all things since he himself made all things. Jesus has power over all things since he himself made all things. Jesus is the author of the world and its history, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the substance and the sum of all things. All things live and move and have their being in Jesus. This is why Jesus could speak to storms and bring peace. This is why Jesus could turn water into wine in John 2. This is why he could know things about people they never told him, like the Samaritan woman at the well, and heal the official's fatally ill son in chapter 4. This is why Jesus could heal the man who had been an invalid for 38 years in chapter 5. This is why he could multiply the bread and fish and walk on water in chapter 6. This is why he could heal the man born blind in chapter 9. This is why he could raise Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 and foretell Peter's denial and Judas' betrayal in chapter 13. Jesus is able to do all of these things because he is the creator and sustainer of the world. He rules over and is sovereign over every detail of the world. 
And the writer of Hebrews says that God upholds all things by the word of his power. He is making a statement about Jesus. All things are upheld by Jesus. All things exist by the power of Jesus. All things exist for the glory of Jesus. Every miracle that John records in his book happened so that we might be convinced that Jesus truly is Lord over all creation and that all things are subject to him. And so that we might gladly choose to put off our rebellion and flee from the death that it has brought and surrender ourselves to his lordship and find life in his name. All things were made through him and exist for him. That includes you and I. The word is the creator of the world. And lastly, in these opening verses, we see that Jesus is the source of life. Read with me there in verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When we look around us, even looking out the window, we see a world bursting with life. Plants, people, animals, all living creatures, but for whom all life is a derived sort of life. It's a life that is dependent on the giver of life to be upheld and sustained. This is why uh, Jesus said in the gospel that when a, a sparrow, a bird flying in the sky, falls to the ground, it is because the giver of life has withdrawn life from it. This is why in Genesis it says that God breathed life into Adam in creation. Adam had been formed by the hand of God, and he had all of the anatomical components that beat and flow and function, but he lacked the breath of life itself. And this life was supplied to him and is supplied to all living creatures every moment of every day of their life. But something different is being said about this one that John is calling us to believe in. Not just that he is alive, nor that he is, has derived life, but that he is life itself. He is the breath of God that animates the living world. He is the very source of life for all living things. This is what Jesus claims in John 5. He says, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the fountain of life that gives life to all living things. But John is making more than an anatomical claim here in these verses. He, he, in these verses, begins to transition from the role of the Word in creation to the role of the Word in the new creation of those who believe in Him. John says, the life was the light of men. And there's a double meaning in that statement. The life that is in Jesus is the animating light that is at the core of all beings, but it is also the pure light of truth and righteousness that flows from his very being. This is what it means that he is the light of men. He is what the psalmist calls the lamp to our feet and the light to our path for those who know God. Jesus is the blueprint and the illuminator of the way to the life that is in God. Jesus himself is the way. 
Wherever anyone in all of history has come to know God and walk with Him, they have done so through the light of the Word, the second person of the Trinity. This is why, even when speaking of the Old Testament saints who lived in a time prior to the coming of Jesus into the world, the Apostle Peter, in his letter, says that it was the Spirit of Christ who was revealing to them the truths about the purpose of God in saving a people for Himself. It is the light of Christ that directs the hearts of people to walk according to his truth. Jesus himself makes this claim in John chapter 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You and I were made to live a certain way and to believe certain things And the way and those things are found in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the light of God to humanity. He communicates His light light to us through His Word, through Jesus Christ. And this light brings us to the life that we are meant to have in Him. This life that is in Jesus is pure life. Pure light with no mixture or hint of darkness. Jesus is the unshaded light of the world who brings his people out of darkness, out of darkness and death, to the life and light through faith in his name. And the last thing that John says about this light is that it is inextinguishable. It, as he says, shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I want you to notice in that verse 5 there, a crucial shift in tense. Now we're getting into grammar. From past tense to present tense. So I'm going to reread those first few verses and notice how everything is stated in past tense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. But now, John shifts and says positively and in present tense, the light shines, not shined, in the darkness. And the darkness has not, not did not, overcome it. The Apostle John is writing these words decades after the coming of Jesus. He was one of the twelve disciples that followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry and witnessed the glory and the light that shone from him through his actions and his words. He heard his claims about being the light of the world and the life of God. And he also witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus and his burial. One would think that this burial would have been a final extinguishing of the light of Christ and a rebuttal to all of his claims. And yet John speaks in present tense, decades after that event, saying that the darkness of this world has not overcome the light. The light of the world, the pre-existent, eternal Son of God, by whom the world was created and for whom the world exists to glorify, was not extinguished in death. It was in his death, in fact, that he went to the deepest pit of darkness to shine his light even there 
and deliver his people from that deep dungeon from which none could escape. Jesus didn't remain in the grave. Three days after his crucifixion, the Son of God rose from death. Because as he said in John 10, he has the authority both to lay down his life and to take it up again. In conquering the grave and achieving victory over death, Jesus has become uniquely qualified to deliver us from darkness and grant us life in his name. And to all who believe in his name, this same inextinguishable life is given. This life that cannot be conquered by any amount of darkness or evil. This life that continued to shine in the lives of the early disciples, even though they experienced severe persecution and hatred. The life that continues to shine in God's people, even through the darkness of martyrdom. Like their Savior, they too will come out of the grave into pure and undefiled life and light. This light, this inextinguishable light, purifies our hearts of the darkness within and preserves us in the world of darkness without. This is the Savior that the opening words of John present to us. The one who is eternal, coexisting with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The one by whom and for whom all creation exists. And the one in whom is life and light for all who would have it. Do you have it? In this world of darkness, our passage today calls out to you. Do you have it? Have you come to know the one who predates creation and is to the world the full and pure revelation of God? Have you surrendered to your creator? Have you tasted indomitable life and light in his name? My prayer is that this Advent season would be a time where all of us can say, even if saying faintly, yes, yes, I have it. I have him. And may this reality for us who indeed do have him be the anchor for our souls in this stormy world until we finally reach the shore of that land which is called life everlasting. Let's pray. Oh, Father, glorify your Son in our hearts. Point our affection and desire to him and satisfy us in your presence and with your truth. Give us hope and life and light. In Christ's name, amen.